Well, good morning. If this is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, whether you're in our room or online, we want to say welcome to you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. Those of you that don't know, I am Pastor Nathan, and today we're going to be closing the study of 1 John and celebrating communion together. So hopefully for those of you in the room, you received one of these communion cups as you came in through the foyer today. If not, when we get to the end, I'll have you raise your hand and our uh, elders will be able to get you one of those. But this would be a good time for those of you watching online to get your communion emblems ready so that we can celebrate that together. But as I mentioned, this morning we are concluding the study of the letter of 1 John. And John closes this letter, this short letter he's been writing, by leaving his readers, uh, those that got it then and us now, some final assurances, some final things that we could know and be confident of. And I believe he's doing that because knowing that we know certain things has a massive influence on what we do. For example, not many of us in our adult lives will willingly touch the metal pot boiling on the stove. Why? Because we know that we know that it will burn us. (laughs) And so we have learned that lesson and we live accordingly. Well, this concept is, is really John's philosophy in his writings, but specifically here in this letter. That philosophy is simply this, I know, therefore I do. Now that's a great philosophy to live our lives by because, you know, the Christian life, the Christian life is lived based on certain things that we absolutely know for sure that we know are absolute solid truths, and because of that, we live a certain way. We do certain things. Now, if you want a kind of key that unlocks the power of God's word in your life, follow that principle. You know, in counseling, so many times, we'll be talking to people, and people will be sharing their challenges and the difficulties and stuff, and, and I'm like, well, this is what the word of God says. Are you doing that? Well, no. Well, I don't know what to tell you, you know? God knows, and if we do what God's word says, if we live accordingly, so many of the challenges in our lives will cease to be challenges. You know, Paul wrote like this all the time. You read the book of Romans. You read 11 chapters of Paul developing his ideas of what we know and the things that are true, and it leads all the way up to Romans 12:1, where he says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. John does the same type of thing in his writings, and he's closing this letter that exact, exact same way. That when you know certain things to be absolutely true, then you're going to live according to those truths. And again, that's why we don't touch the boiling pot on the stove. Now, Paul, John... Jude, Peter, some of the other writers. When you read their letters, you don't get the sense that any of them were living their lives scratching their head going, well, you know, maybe it's true. You know, this Jesus thing, uh, perhaps. I mean, it sounds good. You don't get that idea from any of them. What you get from them is that they were absolutely confident of the truths that they were teaching us. None of them were wavering. And how do we know that? Because we have the histories of how these men died for their faith. Paul stood before Caesar Nero and was beheaded for his faith according to tradition. John, the author of this letter, was banished to the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down according to tradition. All of them went through that for their faith and their proclamation of the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he did, and what that means in our lives. All of them died really terrible deaths in standing for the truth that Jesus changes the lives of people. And when you look at some of that, you think, you know, they really had to believe what they believed in order to die some of the deaths that they went through for their faith. And on top of that, you get indications through the writings of these men that they died without fear, and they faced death without fear. Paul, in Romans 14, 8, he says, if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And I believe Paul could write that because he was absolutely sure of certain truths. Truths of the universe, truths of life. He had no doubt. Well, John, as he's been closing this letter through chapter 5, has been laying out some of these things that we know, these things that we can know for certain while we're here on earth. 
Just a few verses back, he talked about our status before God as one of those things we can be absolutely confident of as people who are saved, that we are his children, that we are securely saved, that we could know that beyond a shadow of doubt. He also went on to say that knowing that, we can have absolute confidence. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. He hears those prayers, and so our status and our speech before God, John is teaching and has been teaching, is assured. Well, now he closes the letter with three more things that we can absolutely be sure that we know. And things that as we know these, these, know these things and walk in confidence with these things have great influence on how we live. One is that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are safe from the ultimate penalty of sin and the present power and control of sin. The second one is that we know which side we belong to. We know which jersey we're wearing and everything that comes with that, the nature we are given because of that, the, the change of heart that is granted because of that. And the third thing is that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know God now and forever. That's what we'll be looking at today as we get into our study and then we'll be closing in communion. But first, we're gonna spend time in worship. And so I just uh, uh, encourage you guys to open your hearts to the Lord. Praise him for who he is and what he's done because he is worthy. Let's pray. God, we know that you are true. We know that you are the true one. Jesus, you said that you were the way, the truth, and the life. And God, it's you that is the truth of, of existence, the, the, the truth of living. And Lord, your children, we as your kids, when we put your, our faith in you, Lord, you do a change in our hearts to bring us an understanding that, they, that we didn't have before, Lord. And you grant us an ability, Lord, to understand that truth, to know that truth, and to live that truth. So God, today as we close the study of this letter that you, you gave to John, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, Lord, in these things that we know. That Lord, if any of us are wavering in our confidence of these truths, Lord, we would be brought back to a place of absolute assurity. Lord, that we would be able to walk away from here and live our lives in the confidence of these truths, Lord, and then behave accordingly, live accordingly, God. Because, Lord, you have revealed your truth to us. You have given it to us in your word. You have given it to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, may we be people who not only study it and learn it, but we let it get inside us and dig deep into our hearts and make roots in our lives that we would be the people you're calling us to be, to live as your children in this world, Choosing obedience, loving one another, and defending the truth of who Jesus is. God, we thank you. We love you so much. We worship you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, and I'll read it again for context, and then we'll dig through. John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So these verses close out this letter that John's writing, and, and verses 18 through 21, they come right off the truths that he just shared in verses 14 through 17. The truth that we know we have access to the presence of God because we are his kids, and we have access to his presence at all times to bring any need, any request to him because we have been adopted into his family. We know that. And then we know that when we come into his presence and make those requests according to his will, he hears us. So we know we have a father in heaven who loves us, who has adopted us, and who listens to us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us to our own in this world that hates him. He's actually with us and listening. And then he went on to give an example that, you know, if you see a brother or sister committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, we talked about that last week, that we're to pray for them that he would grant life to that brother or sister committing that sin. 
And then we talked about how that word life there, what didn't mean like, you know, bring them back from the dead or give them eternal life. It was talking about this, this state of joy and contentment and this state of peace and satisfaction, both mentally and physically. It's just that idea of like, I'm good, I'm good, right? And, and we know that when, when we engage in sin, that life is what gets wrecked, right? We get depressed, we get, we get all types of bad. And so when we see our brothers and sisters in sin, we're admonished to pray, and he's like, look, that's a prayer God hears, right? Pray that God would restore life to them, that God would bring them back. And so, and we doing that, we do that, we pray that way, knowing that no genuine believer can ever commit a sin that would lead to their eternal separation from God. That if you are genuinely saved, you are genuinely secure forever. And then he also acknowledged that there is a sin that does lead to death, does lead to eternal separation from God, but namely, that's just any sin that isn't covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the sin that leads to eternal separation from God. So he started out saying, you know, you know this. You know you have access to him. You know you're adopted. You know he hears you. You know you can pray. And then he gets into these three more things that he leads with, we know. And he says, we know here a few times. Now, considering why John was writing this letter, um, which was to combat the heretical teachings of the Gnostics that were coming into the church at that time. I believe John is, is possibly being just a tad sassy in his choice of words here. A little bit sassy. You know, that word Gnostic, the Gnostics, comes from the root word gnosis. And that word meant knowledge. And these false teachers that were coming into the church were saying, look, we're the ones who know the secret knowledge of how to get to God. We're the ones that really know the truth about how to serve God, how to find God. And so it's just kind of interesting to me here that as John's wrapping up his letter, he's like, oh, you guys want to talk about knowledge. You want to talk about what you know. We know, we know, we know, we know over and over again through the close of this letter. Now, the word that he uses there for know in the Greek is this word oida. And that word refers to knowing something with absolute certainty, not being possible about it, not like, well, I think so, but it's an absolute certainty is what this word oida refers to. It's not just like, oh, no, I've experienced it. It's like, no, it's, it's all-encompassing that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so he's establishing this idea that there are things that the believer can be beyond a shadow of a doubt about. And we are sure, and that is why, incidentally, he can and we can confidently declare that false teachers are liars, as John says through this letter a few times. Confidently, you're lying. You're a liar. The truth is not into. So, verse 18, he gives us the first thing that we should absolutely know. It's that we're safe from sin. That we're safe from sin. Not just its ultimate penalty, but its present power and control. So he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one, the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, John here is revisiting a concept that he has already addressed in his letter about a born-again believer not sinning. Now, he dealt with this, and we dealt with this in detail when we were in chapter two of his letter here, but for a refresher, for those who may not have been here when we covered that, when John says stuff like, those born of God do not sin. When you see phrases like that, what he is not saying is that anybody can be or is ever expected to be sinlessly perfect. That is not what John means when he says phrases like this, those born of God do not sin. You know, if you've ever met someone who tries to be sinlessly perfect, they're pretty grumpy, aren't they? They're pretty miserable people to be around. They're not a whole lot of fun, you know. Um, they alienate others with their legalistic perfection. They live lives of pointing the finger because nobody, including themselves, can reach the standard. And that's really the big reason that we know John is not saying this because it's just not possible for a believer to never sin, to not sin in any way, shape, or form. Every believer sins. John himself established this truth early in the letter in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Now again, this was written to combat this Gnostic teaching that was coming into the church. Namely, these false teachers are coming in and saying, look, sin doesn't exist. And even if it did, it has no bearing on your eternal relationship with God anyways. So who cares if you sin? Because it has no effect. John said in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, 
If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But if that was the case, people ask, why does John then say those born of God do not sin? It's all in the verb tense and all that fancy stuff there, but the idea is that sin isn't your habit. Sin isn't your norm. Sin isn't your practice. A lifestyle of sin isn't what characterizes you. It's not who you are. That's what he means when he says these phrases, those born of God do not sin. They do not want to sin, want to continue sin, sin habitually, sin without even caring or concern that God is hurt by it. The believer can't do that. It's not that the believer can't stumble and fall. We do do that, and John just established that. But that's not our norm. That's not our desire. Or to put it another way, the believer is not dominated by sin controlled by sin. We are not slaves to sin. We are not characterized by it, as I said. But yes, every believer will fall down. We will stumble. We will mess up. We will do something that is sinful, but it's not who we are. Because as saved people, we are God's children. And just like babies, Christians, we learn how to walk one step at a time this spiritual walk that we're called to live in. We learn how to walk in faith, in obedience, and love, and sometimes we fall down and then throw a fit and cry. But then our daddy picks us up and says, let's keep going. And then we maybe take a couple more steps in love, and then we fall down and mess up and hurt someone. And, and, you know, and it's just this process of learning and growing. The stumbles, the oopses, as I call them, they're a fact of life. They're a reality. But everyone who has been born of God, John established in this letter, has been given a new nature, regenerated, born again, and therefore does not habitually, persistently practice living sinfully. They may have moments and seasons, but in the big picture of their life and who they are, that's not what they want to do. To put it another way again, those born of God cannot sin without conviction, guilt, or shame, or concern for how God feels about it. Those who can sin that way, John says, you're not born again. John says, you don't know the Father. John says, if you live that way and claim to know the Father, you're a liar. You know, the moment we come to Christ, the moment we put our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, the Bible tells us that we are saved from the ultimate penalty of sin, hell, and eternal separation from God. We're saved from that. Our eternity is secured. In our future, John even teaches that we will be saved from the very presence and the very temptation of sin completely. It won't even be a thought in our mind anymore. But each day from the moment of salvation to that ultimate promise of heaven, each day we are saved from the dominion of sin. We are saved from the power and control of sin. It's the power of God himself and the Holy Spirit living, when, living within every believer that has given the believer the ability to say no to sin. We have the ability to say no that we didn't have prior to our salvation. We have a thought that this isn't right, I shouldn't be doing this, that we didn't have prior to salvation. This is what John means when he says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. This is what he means when he says everyone who remains in him does not sin. This is what John means when he says this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. The idea is what is your norm? What is your habit? What is your practice? But yes, here on earth, sin clings to Christians, doesn't it? it just, we just can't get it off and you try and avoid it and it comes back and it just seems to cling to us. But the difference is an unbeliever is one who clings to sin. They cling to it, they stay close to it and John has covered this over and over in his letter. Even though a person might claim, I'm a Christian. They might claim, oh I love God, I'm just like you. Even though they might claim that if there's no habit of, 
obeying God, if there's no testimony that, yeah, Jesus is who the Bible says he is, if there's no love for Christians in that person's life, John has been establishing that they are false. They are not God's kids. And they're just like the people who spoke to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter four, verses 16 and 17. The people said to Jeremiah, as for the word you spoke to us in the name of the Lord, we are not gonna listen to you. Instead, we will do everything we promised. And that word promise there is we will do everything we've said with our own mouths. We're not gonna listen to what God said. We're gonna do our own thing. We're gonna do our own thing. And so Jeremiah, to, the, to Jeremiah, these people are just like, we're just not gonna listen to God. And this is the philosophy of a world dominated by sin. This is the philosophy of people controlled by sin. I'm not gonna do what the Lord says. I'm just, I'm gonna do whatever I want. I'm gonna do what the world tells me to do. I'm gonna do what my flesh tells me to do. I'm just gonna do that. And I don't think it's wrong. I have no, no reason to think it's wrong. That is characteristic of people dominated by sin. Not stumbling and going, oops, periodically, but instead being controlled and characterized by it but not the Christian, not the Christian. We know we are safe from the power and control of sin, past, present, and future. And how? We'll look at verse 18. He says, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now you might be saying, wait a second. The devil touches me all the time. He pokes, he prods. He jabs, he challenges, he puts things in front of me. To he messes with me constantly as a believer. So what are you talking about here? Well, that word touch, when it says the devil, the evil one does not touch him, that word means to take hold of or to lay hold of with the idea of claiming ownership. This is mine. This belongs to me. That's what that word touch there. So as a believer... Yeah, you can be hassled. You can be touched, jabbed, tempted, oppressed, and a whole list of other things by the devil. But Satan has no claim of ownership to you. He has no claim of ownership to those who belong to God. And that lack of claiming ownership means he has no authority to demand obedience to him or his ways in your life. None. It's been destroyed. It's been broken. Those chains have been broken permanently and forever. The power and control of the evil one to get into your life and say, do what I'm telling you to do and sin against God, that power's gone for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Incidentally, that, that does speak against uh, Christians going, I, I just can't help it. Yes, you can. It may be incredibly difficult, but you can help it but it's just, uh, I was just raised this way. So what? You've been adopted into a new family. Just do what words God says. Live according to it. But, but. And some of us, we just have those challenges with we want to make excuses to justify sin and then say, oh, I can't help it. And, and, and the word is clear. You can help it. The power and control of Satan has been broken in your life. You have been set free. So live free. Live free. And it's all because it says, the one who is born of God keeps him. Now this is a difficult phrase to parse. There's a few different uh, interpretations on, on who is the one who is born of God and who is kept and all of that. And I don't have time to get into all those details, but I believe what it's referring to here, the one born of God is Jesus. Is Jesus. The idea is that a child of God who has been born of God is safe because the one born of God keeps him. Make sense? That's what I believe this is saying here. Jesus keeps us. That's why we are safe from the power and control of sin. That word keeps, it means to look after, to have charge over, or to guard. Jesus has a hold on your life now as a believer, not Satan. Jesus has a grip on your life now, not Satan. Jesus is the one looking after you and, 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 and guarding you from the power and control of sin. When we give our life over to Jesus, 
which incidentally, John has laid out a very clear and powerful um, uh, path of evidence for that. When we give our life over to Jesus and it's evidenced by all these things that we've been studying in this letter, right? You, ha- you now have a new nature, a habit. You're characterized by, by a desire to, to obey God, to worship, to love the brethren. You, 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 you hate the world system. Generally, sometimes you stumble, sometimes you fall, but at the end of the day, you're like, I don't want that. I want God. I want to follow him. When that's the characterization of your life, those things prove that you are his. And if you are his, you are eternally secure from the ultimate penalty of sin. Eternally secure and presently able to come into his presence and to ask for help to do whatever it is that he's called you to do. Specifically, help to do what he's enabled you to do through the power of the Holy Spirit, to say no to sin, to love the brethren, and on and on. And because you are kept, because you are looked after, because you are guarded by Jesus, the devil can't ever under any circumstance come in and claim ownership of your life. You have to do this because that's what I'm telling you to do. No. I don't have to, devil. You're not my landlord anymore. I don't serve you. I don't belong to you. Does that mean he's going to stop trying to tell you that you belong to him? No, he's going to be trying to tell you that until the day you die. You belong to me. You belong to me. Especially when you stumble, right? You're like, I'm a Christian. I want to obey God. And you have a moment of weakness, and and, and you, you you choose the disobedient thing, and the devil goes, see? Aha! You're mine. But then when you look down and you go, wait, no, I'm I'm still wearing the the Jesus jersey. I fell down. I got dirty. I scraped my knee, but I'm not yours. It's Jesus who does the keeping. It's Jesus who does the guarding. Now, yeah, there are things in Scripture that, that we are told and taught that we are to guard ourselves from and to keep ourselves from. I mean, in in Romans chapter 12, we're told to guard our fervent zeal in the spirit. In Galatians chapter five, verses 16 through 18, we're called to keep and step with the spirit. I'm paraphrasing the, the verses there. Ephesians four, we're called to keep the unity of the spirit. Second Timothy two, we're called to keep ourselves pure, right? So there's things that we're called to keep and guard ourselves. And then of course, we're gonna get to verse 21 in a moment where he says, guard yourselves from idols, right? But when it comes to the keeping of the guarding of our whole selves, our whole person, when it comes to that work, that's all Jesus. When it comes to keeping us and guarding us for our eternal destination that we've been promised in him, when it comes to keeping our permanent status as God's kids, regardless of our stumbles throughout the way, when it comes to keeping all that, it's Jesus. He's got you now and forever. He's got you. Know that. Rest in that. Trust in that. And when temptation of sin comes here and now, well, because we know we got someone guarding us, guess what? Guard, help me. Guard, we can appeal to the one guarding us. Appeal to that one and say, hey, please help me say no to this temptation. But if you fall, please forgive me. I messed up. And he does it every single time. He keeps us secure in regards to our future and he guards us presently from the tragic effects of sin here and now. Now, there is a small caveat to that. You know, as long as you stay close to him, as long as you don't wander off into obedience in that sense, the power of sin here and now is what I'm referring to. You know, if you choose to wander off into obedience and to go do your own thing, well, we we talked about that last week at length, so go listen to that study. (laughs) You know, but John addressed that in 1 John 1, 9, confess your sin, right? Confess it. Be cleansed and forgiven, but we also dealt with it in 1 John 5, 16. That family, we are called to pray for our brothers and sisters that they would be set free from the power and control of sin. And then if they're off wandering and stumbling into it, it's like, uh, pray for them. Pray for them, go to them, talk to them, minister to them, and then, and then, and then encourage them, confess. But the eternal damnation of sin permanently dealt with, we're guarded from that forever. Here and now, the power and control, we are guarded as long as we cling to the one guarding us. The second thing here that we can and 
should be absolutely sure of knowing is, is whose side we belong to, which side we're fighting for. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. You know, in the big picture of eternity, there's only two sides to the fight. You're either of God or under the sway of the evil one. Those are the two options. Our world today, especially for the youth, the world today is trying to tell you guys and just drill into your heads. There's no right and wrong. It's all shades of gray and relative morality. That's not true. There is right and there is wrong because there's a creator who created the rules and established those things. And our job, both young and old, is to learn those things and live according to those things because they represent who we belong to. We need to have confidence in which side we're on. Joshua, if you remember his story, he was about to go into the battle to take Jericho. He was gonna take the city as God commanded and day before the battle or just before the battle, he saw a man standing before him holding a sword. Glorious, powerful. I believe personally that was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, a theophany as it's called, Jesus in the Old Testament if you wanna put it that way but I don't want to argue that with you. Point is, is he saw an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. And Joshua goes, uh, whose side are you on? Our side or the enemy's? Because, come on, pretty intimidating dude. And the Lord there looked at him and he goes, neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. The real question, Joshua, is whose side are you on? Mine or the enemy's? That was the question that he posed to Joshua. And being able to answer that question confidently helps us live righteously. When we're confidently able to say, I belong to the Lord, it's gonna shift everything into perspective for us. I'm on God's team. I'm in his family. I'm his kid. I belong to him. I am of God. Because when we're on God's side, we are of God, knowing that he's our originator, he's the source of our new nature, he's the source of life for us. And so John here in this verse 19, he's kind of drawing a line in the sand, if you will. Drawing a line in the sand, saying, look, you got those of God, and if you're not of God, you're a part of the whole world of those not of God. Two camps. Or as he puts it, if you're not of God, then you're under the sway of the evil one. No middle ground. Now, if you think about it, real, true, authentic Christianity is so radically different than the world system. So radically different. Think of some of the things that Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are the meek. Since when has the world ever thought that way? Blessed are the powerful, they say. Blessed are those who know to take advantage of the weak and oppress the poor for their own gain. He says, under the sway of the evil one. That's an interesting phrase because the, the phrase there kind of reads like, the idea is that you're lying peacefully in the lap of somebody. That's, that's what this phrase under the sway carries. And, and it, if you think about that, when you're you know, lying peacefully in someone's lap, you're kind of at their mercy. You're kind of under their power and control in that moment. It's a very personal and vulnerable type of place. And so what he's saying is here is that the whole world, those who are not of God are being lulled to sleep, their head lying in the lap of Satan. It's an interesting picture. You know, it's like they're just laying there and he's, he's stroking their hair whispering to them, oh yeah, serve me. And they're like, hmm, so peaceful. And all he's doing is leading them to the slaughter. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, the one who presently works in the children of disobedience. Jesus himself referred to him as the God of this world because you're either worshiping God or you're not. You're worshiping the devil and his ways and his system. You're either of God or you're under the sway of the evil one. 
It's an either-or proposition. The entire world system, if you think about it, has opinions and thoughts about how you should think, how you should behave, right? You don't need God. Sin doesn't exist. Morality is subjective. I mean, Satan has influence and, and works across the entire planet. He's working in secular education, in governments, in media, in entertainment, in sports, all over the place, all to influence the minds of people to follow him, his ways, to become his kids, part of his family, children of disobedience. And if you dare say, in this world that is under his sway, oh, I'm of God, if you stand for God, if you dare, ooh, don't do this, declare that God's moral standard is the right way to live. If you dare suggest someone's manner of living is in any way wrong and you base that on God's commands, God's word, God's Bible, wow, you're instantly on the opposing team, aren't you? You're instantly the enemy. Not only can you not have an opinion, but no, you can't even have your business. You can't even go to school here. You can't work here. You can't, you can't exist. How under the sway of the evil one is the world? Completely and totally. But we know what team we're on. We know who the captain of our team is, the commander of the army we're a part of, and as a result of that, as John has been teaching through his letter, you know the nature you've been given. You know you've been different. You, you, you have evidence that is different because you want to obey God in ways you never did before and you want to love the brother. You know what team you're a part of. You know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's never a question. So when Satan comes and says, hey, you belong to me now, there is never a moment in the believer's life where we go, hmm, maybe. Does he? Do I belong to him? Does he have the title deed to my life? No. You're not his. If you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you believe in who he is according to the word of God and who he is revealed to be, and you look in your life and you're like, I want to obey God. I, I see these evidences in my life. You belong to him, God. You're in his family now and forever. Don't question that. Don't doubt that. And especially don't let the devil come in and confuse you. Matter of fact, when he comes knocking, this, this is your spiritual habit. He comes knocking, he's demanding, look at him and do this. <laughs> Get away, punk, you know. Because <laughs> he has no power in your life. No power. So, living that way, though, um, you know, knowing what team we're on, knowing the nature we have through Christ, uh, sometimes it can be daunting. Sometimes it can be challenging. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. It, sometimes it can feel impossible to stand and to fight for righteousness and to persist and to hope. And in those times, we need to know the third thing John points out here, that the Son of God has come. That the Son of God has come. Look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. And you go, well, duh, right? I'm a Christian. Of course I believe he's come, right? Seems like an over obvious, uh, over, overly obvious statement. But the verb tense of has come there doesn't mean that he, he, he came and it was just a singular past event. The verb tense of has come means, means he came and he's still here. Or he came and the effect of his coming is still as active as if he was here. That's the verb tense of this Greek word here. We know Jesus came. But the power and the effect of what Jesus did is lasting all the way through to the end. We know he's coming back. We know Jesus is God. We know God is with us in the Holy Spirit, so he's still with us. He didn't just come and leave. He came and had an effect that persists. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And the answer to that question is nothing. Ultimately, nothing. We're going to heaven, people. Hallelujah. We're saved. We have victory. It's done. 
Now, on the way there, yeah, there's some bumpy roads, roads but, but nothing changes who we are in Christ. Jesus is with us. God himself dwells within us today through the Holy Spirit. That's the reality and the present reality of our lives. But then he goes on in verse 20 to says, not only has, has Jesus come, but has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, if you want to talk to somebody who says Jesus isn't God, they've got to explain that verse right there. If you want to talk to somebody that says, uh, no, Jesus is, uh, he's, he's Satan's brother, uh, he is the true God. It's Jesus. When Jesus comes into our lives, when we receive him as, the, as our propitiation, right, that atoning sacrifice for our sins, we say, you, you died for my sins, you paid the price, I received that. When, when, we, when we enter into that whole process, it's telling us here that he brings an understanding into our lives. He brings a spiritual perception in, into our lives, and it's an understanding, it's a spiritual perception that those without Jesus don't have. You ever wondered why a Christian, you're like, it's, it's plain as day. And they're going, uh, uh, doesn't make any sense to me. It's a spiritual perception. You know, there are so many people that, that, that have, have lived in this world before they were saved. And they go, oh, you know, oh, just whatever. No, it's, it's all roads lead to God. And everybody basically believes in the same thing. And yeah, no, I do some bad things, but, right? But when that person gets genuinely saved, suddenly they're like, oh, my goodness, I know. I know the difference. I, I understand things in a way I never did before. See, when you're saved and you get this understanding that it gives you, it's, it's, it, you, you understand more about the bigger picture. You, 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 you receive more understanding about what it's all about. Your eternal perspective opens up because you know the truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. When we give our life to Christ and Christ comes into our life, we're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells us, we're sealed with the, the Holy Spirit of promise and the guarantee of our inheritance. We are given a spiritual insight. And I believe a part of that spiritual insight is why am I here and, and where am I going and what is my place in all this world system, right? We get that, we get that through, through him coming into our life, our understanding of his word. Why does God leave us here after we're saved and not take us straight to heaven? Because not everybody's saved yet. So we got work to do. Why does this? Why is, it's, we, we, we learn, we follow his word and we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to find out all this stuff, but the spiritual insight comes from him. But those in the world don't have it at all. Those in the world, their whole philosophy for living, their, their purpose is eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Please self, please self, please self. Amass power, amass wealth, amass whatever I want. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Why? Because you're going to die. And there's no hope after death. So hurry, hurry, hurry. Get everything now. But when we get saved, Jesus opens our minds. You remember the two on the road to Emmaus? After the resurrection, right? Told us that Jesus opened up their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. And God has given this understanding to his children that we may move forward in knowing him, knowing Jesus, knowing the true one, and living in that. But then John ends this letter in a very strange way, right? It builds up to this wonderful truth, right? We are in the true one. Know that. You are in Christ. That's, that's talking about being positionally locked away, safe, secure, right? You're in Christ, Wow, this, oh, this is such a powerful theological, doctrinal, spiritual statement. And then, little children, guard yourself from idols. Where'd that come from, John? That seems like an off, awfully practical statement to end this letter with. Where, where are you going? When I was younger in my faith, I thought, we're missing the rest of the letter. Like, I think someone chopped it off there, you know? Because it almost seems like he's starting a new thought, perhaps, or, but, but there's a very logical reason why he ends this way. You see, John has closed his letter with five things we know. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 5, we know our status before God and the access it brings. 
We know that our speech before him is heard, and so we should be secure in that. We know that we're safe from the eternal and the temporal power and control of sin and the devil. We know what team we're on and the nature that that grants us and the character that is a part of all of that. And we know that the Son has come and is here still working and keeping us for eternity, guarding us. And then verse 21, guard yourself from idols. Now tying this to the context of the book and the issue that John was addressing, addressing, remember, he was writing to combat Gnostic teaching. Combat the Gnostics, especially their teachings about who Jesus was and what that meant. That Jesus, some of them were, oh, he's not really God, and oh, well, he didn't really have a physical body, and oh, no, the resurrection didn't really matter, and, and, and all this false stuff. And so as he's been building to this wonderful truth, we know, we know the true one, and we're in him, Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who came physically and who died on the cross and who shed his blood that we would be forgiven and washed clean, saved and set free, eternally secure and free from the power of sin and control now as we cling to him. Guard yourself from idols. Idols here is referring to anything that takes the place of God, takes the place of his truth, takes the place of his way. Loving the world, as he talked about earlier, the things of the world, questionable interpretations of who Jesus is. I mean, he said earlier in the letter, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So the idea here is if God is not the focus of your worship, the focus of your habit, the focus of your life, something else is. Something else is. If it's not God, it's of the world. And the world is under the sway of the evil one. Specifically, the Gnostics, they worshiped knowledge. And they introduced idolatrous concepts of God. We know what God is really like. We know how to really get to him. Forget what his word says. Forget what the apostles are teaching. Forget the letters you're reading. No, you need to follow us in our knowledge. But John says, we who know him who is true, who is true as opposed to any other counterfeit version, any other idolatrous concept about God, as he closes his letter, he goes, guard yourself from those false idolatrous concepts about God, about Jesus, about sin, about salvation. Guard yourself. You know, with the advent of the information age, the internet, YouTube, TikTok and every other platform out there, false concepts about sin, false concepts about Jesus and salvation, they not only abound, but they are so easily findable. Two seconds on your phone, you could be neck deep in heresy. It's so easy to be caught up in this stuff, and it's so easy, because it's so easily findable, it's so easy for it to infect our lives. But God is true. God is true. His word is true. And with all the love I can muster in my heart, I don't care how you feel about that if you disagree with me. I love you. I want you to know him who is true. I want you to know the truth. But I'm not gonna engage in endless debates about what this and this. No, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about sin. Let's talk about salvation because that's ultimately what matters in the eternal picture. Our mission statement here at Hosanna, that we build the, the vision for everything we do from is know the truth, live the truth, share the truth, right? And we say that because you know the truth, you'll know him. Live the truth and you'll have life. And share the truth because he has come and he is still here working to save the lives of those that are still lost. And we're called to be a part of this to defend this, to stand for this, nothing else, no variation, no substitutes, no counterfeits, Jesus, only Jesus, amen? Well, one of the ways that we reinforce what we know is, is in remembering him and what he did, and we do that in the process of communion. It's one of the ordinances that we recognize here at Hosanna and we share together. To take communion together and to follow the example and the teaching of Jesus as he laid this out. And so each of you should have gotten one of these cups that are in the room. Hopefully you all got one. If you don't, please raise your hand nice and high. One of our elders will come by and get it to you. 
If you're online, watching online, please get your uh, emblems ready here. But for those of you in the room, this cup has like two tabs on it, a very thin plastic one and a thicker plastic one. If you just pull the thin tab back very carefully right now, it will reveal the bread here. And in the Gospels, we have the story of Jesus at the Last Supper, teaching his disciples some departing truths that he wanted them to know. And one of those is when he said, it tells us he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we know we're called that when we gather together as the body to, to remember, to celebrate communion. And we do this in remembrance of him. Remembrance of him. You know, the bread represented his body. That's why, you know, true bread used for communion, it doesn't have any leaven in it because the body of Jesus was without spot, without blemish, without sin. And so leaven scripturally represented sin. It puffs you up. And so when we use the bread in communion here, there's no leaven in it to represent the body of Christ that was offered on the altar. This entire process that he went through, this process of suffering, his beating, his scourging, his being nailed to the cross, cross was, was him becoming the offering on the altar of sacrifice for you and for me. And it was him in a physical body that did that. He wasn't a phantom, he wasn't a ghost, he wasn't just an image in somebody's head. He wasn't just a human and the Christ consciousness left him at that point. He was God in the flesh, perfect, sinless, the only one that could pay for your sin and mine. The only one. And we know he came. We know it. We believe it. We confess it. And we know why he came. To be that sacrifice because there was no other way. No other method, no other savior than Jesus, the son of God, come for you and for me. Now because he loves you and me so much, because he loved us so much, he was willing to come and to pay that price for us. That our relationship, our fellowship with him would be restored, that we could then by faith just put our faith in him, be forgiven, be cleansed, to become adopted into the family, children of God, to have that unlimited access to God. And because of his body that was given for us, we know, we know that we have been set free from the penalty of death. We know that we are eternally secure, kept safe forever from the power, of, uh, power and control of sin in our lives. It was all because of him. His body given for us on the cross. His body dying in our place. His body the sacrifice for our sin. And we say, God, we remember. We know that we are free in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your body that was given for us. Lord, we know that the wrath of God against sin required judgment, required justice to be meted out. And yet, Lord, the sin that we had in our lives, the breaking of your law, the sin against you that we all committed, Lord, was so great and so pervasive that there was nothing we could do in and of, our, in and of ourselves to pay the price because you are a holy God, you are righteous and perfect. And in sin we are not. And so Lord, there was nothing we could bring to you that would pay that price. Nothing that we could offer that would, that would wash that sin clean. At best, all we could do was cover it up for a year. But Lord, we know today because you came and you offered your body as the propitiation for our sins. That God, as we trust in you and believe in your sacrifice on the cross, Lord, we know that the price for our sin has been paid eternally. We know that we are eternally secure. And God, we say thank you. We thank you so much for that. Let's partake together.
For those of you in the room, the thicker plastic tab on the cup now, if you very carefully pull that back, it'll reveal the juice here in the cup. You know, at that same supper, Jesus, it tells us, took the cup, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. I love that. Because he didn't just suffer the punishment we were due and leave us still tainted with sin. But say, hey, there's no more punishment because if that was the case, we would just rack up a whole lot of more punishment. He then washed us clean of the stain of sin. He washed us clean of the blemish. And he not only did that, but it's a perpetual eternal thing. That when God looks at our lives today as children of God, when he sees us through the blood of Christ, guess what he sees? Sinless perfection. He sees no spot, no blemish, because it's been washed away by his blood. We don't deserve that. But it wasn't about us deserving it, and it's never about us deserving it. It's because he loved us so much. And it's through our faith in him to say, God, I believe you are God. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you loved me so much. You did that for me, and I put my faith in that. The Bible tells us that we are forgiven. We are set free. We are washed clean, born again forever. And being washed clean, John has taught us that we are then given a new nature, a new nature that can and wants to obey him and do his will. And we know, we know that we're on his team now because of that. We know that we don't wear the jersey of the world anymore. As much as the devil is going to come, throwing his hands around, screaming, trying to intimidate, trying to demand that we're his, we're not. We're free. We don't have to obey him. We don't identify with the world anymore. Our habit is not pursuing the things of the world anymore. We're not under the sway of the evil one anymore. And we say thank you, Jesus, for that. That it was his blood that washed all of that from us. That we can now then live a life saying, God, what do you want me to do? I want to obey you, God. I want to glorify you. It's not about me anymore. It's about you, Lord. All my sin is completely paid for. It's completely washed away. And because of that, I live in great confidence. To where any moment on any day, I could boldly come into your presence, God. Say, Dad, I need some help. Dad, I stumbled and fell. I scraped my knee. Dad, my, my, my friend, my brother and sister, they're, they're caught up in something. Please set them free and grant them life. And we know that we have that access and cleansed and, and, and forgiven. We're able to come into his presence anytime and ask him for all that we would need. To forgive us when we stumble, to help us to be righteous as he is righteous, to help us to love as he loves. All because we know without a shadow of a doubt who he is, what he's done, and what that means for us. We know, therefore we do. Therefore, we do. Guarding ourselves from all false, idolatrous concepts about God, about Jesus, about sin and salvation, and testifying that God has indeed granted us eternal life through the death of his son. Father, we thank you so much for your shed blood. God, you washed us clean. You made us holy people. You've given us a new heart, a new nature, Lord, to live for you in this world. It's in you, it's through you, it's because of you. God, you are truth, you are the true one. You are the true God and you are eternal life and we thank you, God, for granting us that eternal life. Thank you for granting us all that is in you to to be your children, to live free, to live cleansed, forgiven. God, we remember what you did for us and we trust in that for our very lives today, for the rest of our lives here on earth, and for forever in heaven with you. Thank you for loving us so much, God. Let's partake together.
Well, Father, we thank you for the study of 1 John. Lord, it has been a very eye-opening, Lord. God, so encouraging that we were able, God, to, to live in you, to live for you, and to do that in a world that hates you so much, that wants to twist and distort truth in every way it can. But Lord, as children of God, we are children of truth. Help us to stand for truth, help us to defend truth, and help us to know truth that we would live accordingly. God, we thank you for everything. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you for rising from the dead and granting us new life. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to stand on the truth of who you are. Help us to love one another the way you love us. Help us to glorify your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.